0: well death was everywhere in shakespeare's england and the exhibition brings that out very nicely there were all kinds of ways to die and people were probably more familiar with death in their everyday life than we are today on the other hand Death did not hold the upper hand in 16th century England, as is evident from the speed at which the population was increasing. Um, Graphs like this always start in 1540, because parish registers started in the late 1530s. So we can count people being buried and people being christened from the late 1530s onwards. And as you can see, from that point, there's dramatic increase in population, Uh, all the way through to the middle of the 17th century. And so Shakespeare's experience would have been of a world very full of young people, very, very full of very young people, because possibly half of children died before they reached the age of five, uh, but still with large numbers of older children and teenagers around. Uh, So one thing you can see from this graph is this terrific Speed of increase, far more people being born and surviving than there were di- dying, but also that there are one or two periods where there are sudden jags in that graph. The most obvious one here in the where's the point there in the late 1550s that is England's first really major outbreak of flu uh, and so the next thing to say about death is that death came in all sorts of different ways, but the way which really struck contemporaries was epidemic disease. Uh, influenza in that case something called the sweating sickness which may have been a viral infection a bit like influenza bad uh, earlier on uh, particularly in the in the 15 teens and the 1550s uh, but also recurrent coming back every summer some years worse some years better some places worse some places better was bubonic plague uh, and you'll see that in the exhibition from the Bills of Mortality figures, where people died in the 1660s of all sorts of things. Some things we find very strange today, a number of people there died of teeth, which appears to mean such bad infection in rotten teeth that it, it, it gave them an infection, blood poisoning or something from which they died. Hundreds of people died from lots of things, thousands of people die from plague in those figures. And plague outbreaks were clearly terrifying. This is what happened at Portsmouth when the English army brought back plague from the besieged English garrison at La Havre in 1563. Uh, burials April, May going on a fairly standard kind of level and then look, June, July, August, September. So that's what it's like to live through a plague outbreak, the number of, of people being carried away. I'm not going to spend the rest of the lecture talking about that because what I've spent the past few years looking at is what seems to me a more, certainly a more varied and in many ways a more fascinating kind of death and that's people dying in accidents because people die of plague in lots of similar ways by and large, people die in accidents in an enormous variety of different ways Uh, and thankfully the government wrote it all down for us. Because in the 16th century, like today, if you died in a sudden or unexpected way, there would usually be a coroner's inquest. From the point of view of the government in the 16th century, part of the point was to find out had you been murdered, in which case there would need to be an investigation and a prosecution, had you committed suicide, in which case your family would lose your goods, you couldn't be buried in consecrated ground uh, and, and so on, or was it an accident? So the inquests are trying to establish the lines between accidents and other kinds of outcomes, and they produce documents which look like this, they tell you, where the inquest was held, who the coroner was, who the jurors were, and then crucially for us they tell us what the jurors uh, came up with as a verdict about what had happened to the person who had died. Uh, in this case, uh, as you'll see that l- as we go on, there are lots of drownings. This is a drowning of a young woman called Isarda Della, uh, and the classic question with drowning was, d- had the person thrown themselves into the river, was it a suicide, Or were they trying to do something which was a credible explanation for why they might have fallen in? And of course this raises all kinds of problems for us because we honestly don't know what the jurors thought. Were the jurors just being kind to her family when they said no? She had a bucket, she was trying to fetch water, she obviously just fell in trying to fetch water. Uh, We can't tell. All we can do is classify these things on the basis of the verdict. That we have. That being said, if you were jurors and it could be shown that you'd come to a false verdict, you could be prosecuted for that. So there are strong incentives for getting the answer uh, more or less right. So we have these coroner's inquests we have about 9,000 of them from the 16th century. Uh, I freely admit we stole the idea for looking at them from medieval historians who had done fascinating things with uh, coroner's inquests from the 14th and 15th centuries. They have them from six different counties very patchily uh, spread across a long period. We have 9,000 and we have them from more or less every county in England. Uh, Cheshire, Lancashire and the City of London had separate administrative systems as did the Welsh counties so we haven't got them from there. But other than that, we've got them from everywhere. Even the Cheshire ones, actually, we do have, but they survive in a different set of records. Now, you might judge, looking at this graph, that actually people from Yorkshire are just very accident-prone. Those of you with more statistical sense might figure that maybe there were more people living in Yorkshire in the 16th century than there were in other parts of England, and that was the case. By and large, uh, these figures, and I I sometimes show people uh, a graph which compares this with the number of people eligible for service in the militia to defend the country in different counties, in Elizabeth's reign, and they more or less match up. So there were lots of men in the militia in Yorkshire, lots of people having accidents, not many men in the militia in somewhere like Worcestershire, which you can see is light green here, not many accidents, and there weren't many accidents either. Um, So they roughly uh, mirror the number of people living in the country. Interestingly too, from a historian's point of view, they happen all across the landscape. Most historical records tell us about what happens in one place. Church warden's accounts tell us what happens in the church and the churchyard. Borough court records might tell you what's happening in the marketplace. But people have accidents everywhere. They have accidents where they're travelling. Streets, roads, bridges, rivers. They have accidents where they're working. Uh, fields, woods, mills. Uh, places like that they have accidents where they're living their home uh, water sources close to their home uh, and they have accents uh, they have accidents uh, in different kinds of landscape on hillsides in marshes and so on so these accidents take us across the breadth of Tudor England and they also take us across the breadth of Tudor society because they happen to all kinds of people we're used to the idea that historical records in the past write a lot more about famous and important people than they do about ordinary people. Um, If I'd asked any of you on your way in, do you know anything about Anne Boleyn, quite a lot of you would have said, yes, I know this or that about Anne Boleyn. If I'd asked you, do you know anything about Izada Della from Kingston upon Thames, you would have said, no. So so most historical records tell us about famous people. These records tell us about everybody. Uh, And uh, as you can see, a lot of children, children up to six, children seven to 13, Tudor people seem to have thought of ages in seven year blocks. Uh, A lot of women, wives, widows, female household servants, a lot of men of low social rank, a lot of labourers, a lot of household servants but also men of higher social rank, esquires and gentlemen and some slightly unusual categories, there's a Dutchman who falls off a ship in Newcastle, Uh, there are are beggars, Um, there's a minstrel and we'll come to him later. So we have all kinds of people. So the kinds of accidents that I want to talk about today, we, we, we have a very wide variety of these accidents and if you have a look at our website which I put up at the, at the start, we uh, put up a new accident every month. Uh, we thought it was a bit tasteless to call it accident of the month, so we called it <laughs> discovery of the month, but we have a, a variety of different things that we found uh, there. But what I want to talk about today are work accidents because as we'll see, an awful lot of accidents uh, happened at work in the 16th century and then leisure accidents because uh, one of the intriguing things that these accidents reveal is how people were entertaining themselves in the past Uh, work accidents then about half our accidents this big blue slice they're work accidents and quite a lot of the travel ones the green ones are probably work related as well they just say he was going across the bridge and they don't say whether he was going across the bridge in order to mow the grass on the other side or he was going across the bridge to have a drink in the pub so we don't know we just have to call that travel Um, As you can see there are other big categories. Um, Hygiene is an interesting one that's that sort of orange slice over there because if you read uh, Tudor medical books then they say whatever you do don't have a bath and so because baths are really bad for you because they open the pores on your skin and all the diseases get in obviously say medical books change your shirt because that's a much healthier way of keeping clean. Now if you're Henry VIII and you've got loads of shirts that's fine, if you're a farm labourer and you've got one shirt that's not really very practical advice and anyway you're probably illiterate so you can't read the the medical book and so we have lots of farm labourers who in July and August, nearly always July and August, it's so hot that at the end of a day's work they just strip off and jump in the nearest river and then the water's very cold and they have a heart attack or they get tangled up in weeds or, or whatever. So we have a lot of uh, hygiene drowning. Some of it's just people bending over trying to get a drink from a river uh, and, or wash their face in a river uh, and they fall in. But a lot of it is, is, is uh, washing. Um, so when you read in books, Tudor people didn't have baths. It's not strictly true because Tudor people did wash themselves all over except it was farm laborers who didn't read medical books. So we've got these different sorts of, of things. Uh, And if we look at kinds of work uh, that people have accidents doing, then immediately some things strike us as strange. A significant number of work accidents are fetching water. And we think that piped water is good for us because we don't get cholera, and that's true. Piped water is also good for us because we don't have to go to a river several times a day with a bucket. And we don't have to go to a river when it's raining and the riverside is muddy and we might fall in. We don't have to go to a river when we're feeling really ill, but we still need water, so we've got to go to the river. Uh, and Tudor people try to make fetching water safer so they have uh, ways of making wells safer but even quite complicated wells you can still have an accident with. So this is an example of this, we think of wells now as rather sweet things, don't we, that you might drop a tuppney bit in for a, for a bit of luck. Uh, but actually even complicated wells can go wrong, so here's Catherine Hancock drawing water from a draw well using a bucket. The reports are in Latin but they often put technical terms like a bucket in English. Uh, <laughs> and she puts her left hand on the winding barrel, so they've got the rope wound around a barrel, so it's. Easy to wind the rope up and down to let the bucket down, uh, but she's using her right hand to move the rope with the bucket on. She looks down the well and she's leaning on the barrel. And what do barrels do? They spin round. So the barrel span round and she fell. Into the, into the well. Uh, and we've got similar things, we've got uh, wells with curbs around them to stop people falling in, but then of course you can trip over the curb. So whatever you do, we've got wells with, uh, with wheels uh, that have the, the rope around them, but then the wheel breaks, and so bits of wooden wheel are flying off as the bucket pulls the rope down, hitting people in the head. So you can make a more and more complicated and safer well, but it still won't necessarily stop people having accidents with it. What kind of people fetch water? female people fetch water. So we can look at the gender uh, of work and fetching water, for example, overwhelmingly women's work. Um, And even the men who are doing it, half of them are under 14. So it's women's work or boys' work. Uh, I haven't got the slide to show this, but what's men's work, digging is overwhelmingly men's work. Lots of other work, you see mostly men doing but some women or mostly women but some men. Digging seems to be almost universally male, but again, uh, it's not totally male. So just as if you're a man and you need some water, you don't think, oh, well, I'll just wait around until a woman comes. You do actually go with your bucket and get some water. In the same way, if you're a household of, say, a widowed mother and her teenage daughter, and you need to, uh, the thing we see women digging most often is, is marl to spread on the fields. If you think our field just isn't fertile enough, we need to get some chalk on it to, uh, to make it more fertile, you'll go and dig up some chalk to spread on the, on the field. So there isn't a complete taboo on men doing women's work or women doing men's work. Similarly, we can look at children's work. Uh, The good news is children under six are not doing much work. Um, So the little tiny blue slice up there, it tends to be five-year-old boys looking after pigs. Um, uh, And uh, as you can see, quite a lot of leisure, quite a lot of sleeping and things collapse on, on, on children and so on. So children under six are not working very much. The bad news is children from 7 to 13, about a third of their accidents are at work. So children are starting work very young uh, by our standards uh, in in this society uh, and sometimes doing work that uh, I would regard as a bit dangerous. So we have large numbers of 9, 10, 11 year old boys driving carts with teams of two horses and two oxen or four horses. Um, I occasionally express my alarm at this to uh, audiences in more rural areas and somebody always puts their hand up and says I drive my fast tractor when I was eight but um, so so people still get young boys to do dangerous things but um, there's quite a lot of that going on. On the other hand as we discovered this is one of our sort of prize accidents you could get driving lessons. So this is a nine-year-old boy driving a car two horses and two oxen he's doing it under the rule and guidance of his father and where do they go they go to the gravel pits this is the 19th century ordnance survey map of this village uh, in Norfolk uh, where there were still gravel pits out in the middle of the fields presuming this is a nice quiet place where if the boy does something wrong it's not going to cause a disaster Uh, when I learned to drive my dad took me to a disused airfield and that's the kind of equivalent of this in, in the 16th century but as you can see It it still goes wrong because boys will be boys and the nine-year-old boy runs up to the cart and jumps on it, which his father has told him not to do, presumably he does it rashly and without consulting his father, the cart tips over, the horse panics, the cart tips over uh, and the boy is killed. So uh, there's no 16th century book that tells you how to teach a boy to drive a cart, we simply wouldn't know about how people, indeed whether people, taught boys to drive cars. Did they just say to boys one day, there you go, you're nine, there's the horses, there's the cart, see you tomorrow? Um, <laughs> apparently not, they do actually try and teach them how to drive. So we can look also at different kinds of work uh, that people do. Uh, what are the dangerous kinds of work? Some of them are the kinds of work which are still dangerous now. Farming still has a high uh, accident rate and as you can see both arable farming and pastoral farming farming with animals uh, are dangerous Um, building work is still dangerous now mining is still dangerous now but fetching water the big purple slice that's fetching water which wouldn't come anywhere on modern uh, accidental death statistics Work with guns you would expect to be dangerous and it is dangerous though uh, those are nearly all 1590s accidents because guns are spreading through 16th century society uh, uh, across the century. So types of work uh, are dangerous and some substances are dangerous in the 16th century which aren't really very dangerous for us now. Hay is seen quite dangerous in the 16th century because there are just big piles of it around the landscape and it falls on people so here's a man he's been working probably since five or six in the morning because it's August it's harvest they're trying to get everything in six o'clock in the evening he thinks I'm just gonna nip off and have a sleep because I'm so tired goes to a hut and a large pile of hay falls on him and we've got hay falling off carts onto people hay is clearly quite a dangerous substance Uh, reminds me slightly of that bit at the end of the film Witness when they're in the grain drying Uh, yeah somebody else has seen that parallel too Um, uh, so hay is dangerous Um, animals are dangerous there are a lot more animals around and people are in contact with animals all the time what are really dangerous animals horses above all More than three quarters of deaths involving animals involve horses, partly because horses are pulling carts uh, and ploughs, but also because so many people are riding. Um, We'll look at some of these other animals in a minute, but horses are really dangerous. And one of the reasons is because so many people ride uh, there's a, an Italian visitor to England in the 1550s. He says, England is amazing because even the peasants ride horses. And there is a sense that he thinks that's a bit inappropriate, really. It ought to be people like him who ride on horses and peasants just kind of you know, tip their cap to them as they, as they go past. But in England, as you can see, you've got rich people, judges, esquires, gentlemen, people like that. You've got reasonably rich people, yeomen, people bar- farming a big family farm with a surplus for the market. But you've also got uh, labourers, household servants, young boys, young girls, all kinds of people riding horses. And one of the reasons for that is that you could get a cheap horse or you could get an expensive horse. I say to people you can be run over by a Maserati or you can be run over by a Skoda and I'm allowed to say that because I drive a Skoda. So this is the 6th century equivalent of being run over by a Skoda. Um, William Jennings riding a small debilitated white nag. I, I don't think I googled small debilitated white nag to get that picture but I assume that's what a, a small debilitated white nag might, might look like. Um, he falls into the water because there's flooding and he drowned and the horse is worth two shillings so that's 10p. In today's money, office, there has been some inflation since then, but, but that's, that's, that's four days wages for a labourer, uh, t- uh, two, two shillings. Um, and the person who's keeping hold of the horse has the same name as the person who had the accident and is a labourer, so that suggests he's from a labouring family. Uh, So you can fall off a cheap horse or you can fall off a seriously expensive horse. This is one of the few victims of whom we have a painted portrait, Uh, Judge John Glanville, he's riding his bay gelding along the highway, fell off the horse, hit his head on a stone uh, and the gelding, admittedly with its tack, is worth £4. So that's £4 in today's money, so you can have a 10p horse or a £4 horse and that's uh, the kind of difference. The most expensive horse we've yet found is a war horse belonging to, well, we think it's a war horse, belonging to the Earl of Pembroke, which was worth £20. So that's the equivalent to being run over by somebody's private helicopter or, or <laughs> something. Um, so you can have accidents with all kinds of horses. You can also, as you might remember from that first graph, have accidents with other kinds of animals. And the real trick question we ask people is, if you were killed in the 16th century in an accident in which more than one person was killed, then what was the animal most likely to be? And usually they can't guess because the answer is a sheep. And the reason is that you take sheep into fast flowing rivers to wash them before you shear them. And panicky sheep and people with very waterlogged clothing in fast flowing rivers is not a good recipe for safe working. People are wearing underwear made out of linen and overclothes made out of thick wool. So it's like going into a river wearing an entire suit of uh, tea towels as your undergarments uh, and then thick overcoat all the way down to your ankles and then trying to play with a panicky sheep. Uh, And that's not advisable. Uh, And and one of the tragic, all these accidents are tragic and we have to say to ourselves from time to time why are we looking at all these tragic things and for me the answer is because if we weren't thinking about these people nobody else would. Uh, and so, these two sisters who drown in a river in Lancashire would be completely forgotten if we weren't talking about what they tell us about what it was like being a young woman working in a river in Lancashire in the 16th century. Uh, but this is a particularly sad one because you can imagine the split-second decision as the sister thinks, my sister's in trouble, what am I going to do? That looks dangerous, but I'd better go and help her. And then somebody else jumps in from the bank to help the two of them and all three of them drown, and we've got half a dozen accidents like this where multiple people drown washing sheep in rivers. Nowadays, if we think about work accidents, we tend to think about machinery. Uh, We all go to the shredder and see that notice saying, be careful what you do with your tie and and things like that. Um, And there were machinery accidents of significant numbers in the 16th century, but the really dangerous machinery was carts. Uh, So if you like, they're transport, travel accidents, uh, a lot of them, but also other kinds of machines, as you can see, different kinds of mills, water mills, windmills, fulling mills for for, uh, fulling cloth, uh, windlasses for raising stones uh, and, uh, and, and all sorts of different machinery. Um, carts are dangerous and th- we've got so many cart accidents that we can work out what's dangerous about driving a cart at the time. So this shows for example the kind of situations in which it's dangerous, it's not very dangerous to drive your cart uphill, it's really dangerous to drive your cart downhill because you've got no brakes. Uh, and so for example we quite often find that on slippery uh, uh, hills people are going in front of the cart to try and stop it running away and walking backwards down the hill in front of it which given that it's a slippery hill is not a very safe working procedure but it's the only thing they can do to stop the cart running down the hill uh, and crashing and also carts overturning uh, obviously is dangerous because the stuff in the cart comes out and and hits you uh, and so on and you have to watch out for obstacles in the road, ruts, children running around Uh, whatever. So carts are dangerous but other machinery is dangerous too, windmills are dangerous and this is true of watermills too because you can get pulled into the machinery and it's big wooden cog machinery. So here's the keeper of a windmill, the upper chamber of the windmill and very often accidents happen like this he's trying to grease part of the machinery or, or sometimes they're trying to free an obstruction in the machinery and then either the windmill or the watermill turns around wheel turns around unexpectedly a bit of clothing gets caught, and people get dragged in. So here's somebody who gets pulled in there. Uh, similarly, of course, mills are problematic because millstones are very heavy. So when you're changing the millstone, or sometimes they're pecking the millstone, they're cutting, recutting the grooves in the millstone for the uh, for the grain to to run along. Um, then uh, that's a dangerous time. And here's a, a, an example where a millstone falls on a boy who's helping men to change the uh, the, the millstone. Um, Other kinds of machinery are more localised, this is a cider press accident Uh, this cider press is in a farm museum in Jersey but it sounds from this description of the accident in Somerset as though the cider press they're using is very like this one here because the uh, husbandman, uh, he's in the ring house, the the apple ring they call it which is the the apple press, the cider press, working with his two sons they've got a big beam called a Sumner like this big beam across the top here and it rests on two screws or vises which seem to be like these wooden screws at the side and they're trying to unscrew it so they can get the beam off but the beam falls off before they're expecting it and hits one of the boys uh, on the head and like some of our other accidents you get a rather gruesome description here of exactly what happened to him when he was hit it looks as though the jurors quite often they're in a pub or or church or somewhere like that and they've actually got the body on the table in front of them and so they're explaining what's happened in relation to what they can see uh, in the uh, on the corpse in front of them So that's a cider press. There are also problems with machines that people didn't understand or didn't know about. That's the charitable view of this accident. The jurors took a less charitable view. Uh, This is a blast furnace Uh, and John William, this young man, they said he was idle and moved by wantonness. Because what he did was go to the top of the blast furnace and start kicking around the charcoal on the top. Which is not a very sensible thing to do when somebody's already lit the fire on the bottom. Uh, and the smoke and flames from the fire went up through the charcoal and suffocated him as he was there fooling around on the top of it. But clearly the jurors thought uh, he was, um, uh, you know, just, just messing about too much. Uh, so don't mess about with a blast furnace should you ever be tempted to do so. Let's think about leisure. Thought enough about work. So for the last few minutes we'll think about leisure. So what do we know about children's leisure? As we saw, quite a lot of children uh, have accidents going about their leisure. Um, A lot of the time it just says playing, so we don't know, but sometimes it goes into really fascinating detail. And again, as now, you can have really, really expensive toys and you can have really, really cheap toys. So here's a really, really expensive toy. Uh, This isn't the boy who has the accident, this is Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, who is his guardian. He's the guardian of seven-year-old George Lord Dacre, uh, who Thomas Duke of Norfolk had lined up to marry off to one of his daughters. Um, And seven-year-old George Lord Dacre, he's in the house of the Duke of Norfolk in Thetford. Uh, He has his dinner, his his midday meal in a dining chamber, went off by himself to a gallery in the house, and he has a wooden vaulting horse, so this is uh, the equivalent of a rocking horse, except it doesn't rock, it's to jump on and jump over and so on. And it's four and a half feet high and more than six feet three inches long. So it's a horse-sized rocking horse. Uh, and perhaps not surprisingly being seven he can't climb on the back of it but he knows that you can adjust it so he starts trying to adjust it by pulling out the metal pins and the whole thing falls on top of him so that's the, uh, you know, when you go to Hamleys or wherever you see those kind of small racing cars for, for uh, uh, well-endowed children to drive around in, that's the 16th century equivalent of that. Most children have to have, uh, resort to simpler games like this three-year-old who is sitting in the street making certain bread called cakes out of mud. So she's making mud pies and she falls over backwards into the ditch. Um, and... Most of the time then we just say children were playing, sometimes it says running and playing, but very occasionally we get a sense of what children were actually doing. Picking flowers too is a big one and this is our best uh, Shakespeare link. Uh, We did the press launch for this project with this because the press office, the minute they heard the word Shakespeare, strangely enough, they got quite excited. Um, And there's a girl called Jane Shakespeare She was aged two and a half when William Shakespeare was about five. She lived about 20 miles from Stratford. She may have been a cousin, we don't know. We know about Shakespeare's brothers and sisters, we don't really know about his wider family. There are other people with the name of Shakespeare across Uh, Warwickshire and Worcestershire. So the claim that this is the real Ophelia, which is, uh, we would like to blame it on the press office and say they urged us in that direction. On the other hand, more than 100 websites around the world picked it up within 24 hours of us releasing it, including the Iran Book News Agency, which I didn't even know existed. Uh, So this is quite a a good eye-catching accident. And this uh, kind of thing, picking flowers, because flowers are growing near water a lot of the time, picking flowers is a classic way to, to have an accident. Small girls pick flowers, not wishing to indulge gender stereotyping too much. What do small boys do? They hit each other with their school bags. And, and uh, any bus stop on any day of the week, you can see schoolboys hitting each other with their school bags. And they did it in the 16th century. Uh, here they were in Warwickshire, and sadly, one schoolboy had a knife in his school bag. Uh, uh, and uh, as you can see, again, the enormous detail the reports go into. He had a leather satchel in his right hand. Uh, he hit... Uh, Edward uh, with his leather satchel and the satchel contained a knife with no sheath which thrust through the said satchel, uh, hurt him in the stomach and like a lot of our accidents the death wasn't instant. Uh, Probably he lost a lot of blood, maybe he got, it's probably too fast for blood poisoning quite often people are dying seven days, ten days after the accident so presumably it's an injury which produces blood poisoning or a blood clot or or something. So that's children's leisure. What about adult leisure? what do men do when they have a spare moment? They play football. Uh, in the 16th century, they played a lot of football, mostly in February and March. Those are the two big months for football accidents. It wasn't uh, 4-2-4. Uh, This is 60 men playing in a game uh, in Cornwall. Uh, they even had a local name for it, Hurling, and they stressed that it's according to ancient custom because they don't want the coroner to think this is basically just 60 people having a fight. Uh, uh, and interestingly, it's a local derby. Because you have John Cooling from Bodive, a uh, village over here on the, uh, in the west, playing against uh, Nicholas Jane of Benbowl, which is over here in the east. And they're playing, it's like a cup final at a neutral ground. They're playing at Trigordon uh, in, the, uh, in, in the middle uh, of, of the, uh, on the moors, just between the two villages. And it's more like rugby or even American football, because people also seem to tackle people who haven't got the ball, than it's like modern football. He's, one's holding the ball in his right hand, they grapple, one is thrown away breaks his leg and then dies uh, 16 days later. So we have football accidents, and football is the big late winter sport. What's the big summer sport? Because they haven't yet invented cricket. They're in the process of inventing cricket in the 16th century, and the big summer sport seems to be throwing things, <laughs> throwing the hammer in particular, which of course survives as an Olympic sport, but now they have that big wire safety cage around the thrower. They didn't have the big wire safety cage in the 16th century. Uh, so this is an Oxfordshire accident, uh, various men throwing a workman's hammer called a sledge, it's a sledgehammer, uh, and Elizabeth Albert is sitting watching and the jurors are at great pains to point out that if she'd stayed by the house sitting watching then she wouldn't have been hit by the hammer but instead she got up and ran off and it hit her on the head. And it's interesting with these throwing sports, and it's true of archery practice too, the jurors often record very carefully that the person throwing the hammer or firing the arrow shouted to warn people. So it clearly wasn't his fault. Uh, Robert, uh, no, Francis Robinson, who threw the hammer here, he shouted to warn those standing by. Sometimes it even tells you what you shouted. You didn't shout for, like in golf, you shouted where, where, apparently, which means get out of the way, I'm going to throw something. Um, we have less sympathy actually, there is a man who practices throwing the hammer by throwing it over his house which is not very wise because he couldn't see if there was anybody on the other side and as it turned out there was. But under normal circumstances you shout where where and you make sure you're not going to hit anybody throwing the hammer. Uh, so that's dangerous. What's a manly sport? What, what really proves what a man you are? Wrestling seems to be manly. So here are, um, this, this starts to sound like Monty Python, it's the three wrestling Yorkshiremen and they're in a churchyard uh, in Yorkshire Uh, wrestling, John Homler, Thomas Tennyson, William Lamrose and a fourth Yorkshireman comes up, Stephen Kingham and he says he is a manly man. The original says he said he was virilis homo uh, and that he could throw all three of them over the churchyard wall. Whether he'd had a drink with his lunch, we we don't know. Um, But rather foolishly, John Homler said he really didn't think that he was a manly man who could throw all three of them over the churchyard wall. And so he took him, and again, the jurors are keen to say this really isn't a murder. Without malice or ill will, he took him and put him over the churchyard wall. And this happens with a lot of football accidents as well. He hadn't, the person being picked up and thrown, hadn't taken his knife out of his belt after lunch, because everybody has a knife in their belt for cutting up their food. Uh, and the knife in his belt went through his elbow as he as he fell Um, it's not very often that we get little snippets of terminology or language like this that tell you what people are thinking about things but when we do get them they're invaluable so the idea that these people weren't randomly wrestling but actually this is about I'm a bit more of a man than you are and I bet I can put you over that churchyard wall. There's another nice one where two people they end up uh, fighting with quarter staffs and one of them goes past and the other one says uh, if you get me a staff I will show you some points of learning for your erudition. In other words I'll show you a thing or two mate if you get me one of those and then they start fighting and one of them accidentally hits the other one on the the side of the head. Um, So we get little snippets of things that suggest wrestling is important. Uh, Wrestling was manly. What was trendy, at least amongst students, swimming. Um, Swimming doesn't seem to have been done, literary scholars at least say, swimming isn't big in medieval romance. Heroes of medieval romance don't swim very much, unlike heroes in the classics. Odysseus, Caesar, people like that, swim and so as the Renaissance takes hold, this is one of those sort of broad brush cultural history arguments but I think it it works, as the Renaissance takes hold young men start to think yes swimming I should swim like Julius Caesar or or like Odysseus or whoever. Certainly our sister university has a problem with it because they have to ban it and in 1571 the Vice Chancellor uh, John Whitgift who went on to be Archbishop of Canterbury They forbade any scholar to enter any river, pond, or water in Cambridgeshire by day or night to swim or bathe. First offence public beating in the hall of your college second offence expulsion from the university and these graph is drownings at Grantchester just up the river from Cambridge as you can see slightly more after the university banned it than before the university banned it so any lessons you wish to draw for student disciplinary places I I leave up to you and of course there's always at least one sad don who wants to be down with the kids and in this case it was Everard Digby fellow of St John's who wrote a book on how to swim when the university had just banned learning how to swim Uh, at least he. the decency to do it in latin first De Arte but it's then translated into english as a short introduction for to learn to swim and there's a copy of it in the exhibition it has rather wonderful woodcuts including one illustrating what digby says is the safest way to get into the water he says don't whatever you do jump in feet first that's really reckless you should run up to the water put your hands behind your neck turn a somersault and land flat on <laughs> your back in the water so, ideas about safe swimming practices have changed a little uh, in the time since the 16th century. Maybe that's what happened to all these poor people at Grantham. They'd, they'd been told by Everard Duby that was the way to do it. Um, of course, one of the problems with this uh, research, we rapidly realised was that there must have been things that people did in tutoring that were so safe that they never came up in the accident statistics. And the example we used to use for this was bowls. You can do all these dangerous sports, and of course, you have an accident. Surely bowls is nice and safe, unless it's bowls on ice, <laughs> which is what these people were playing in Oxford in 1534. Uh, Oxford Miller, playing with six other men, five of them servants of Roland Cooper, so it's between Roland Cooper's workshops afternoon off, or whatever. There they are playing bowls, 28th of December, so it's still part of the Christmas season, festive season. Fancy, you've been doing indoors, doing all that eating and drinking, you think, let's get out and have some nice fresh air and play bowls on ice. Uh, and they're on Miller Mead, just by the charwell, uh, and the bowl rolls off the ice, and you go and fetch it, and the ice breaks, and you fall through. So bowls on ice is not too safe. Now you might think uh, all this leisure is dangerous. Let's try some professional entertainment. Surely that will be safer. Leave, leave the dangerous bits to somebody else. This is where our minstrel comes in because his speciality appears to have been juggling with daggers, which is quite an exciting thing to watch, um, but of course it's quite a dangerous thing to do. Uh, So here he is. says playing with daggers, he may be juggling, he may be doing acrobatics over the daggers, however it happens, he falls on one of them and wounds himself in the neck uh, and dies. And it's 9pm in May, so this is probably late evening performance, maybe he's been doing it uh, through the day and he loses concentration uh, or whatever. Even uh, advertising professional entertainment could cause accidents in 16th century England. Again, we didn't think we'd have death by advertising, uh, yeah. but here it is. At Charing Cross, Simon Poulter is one of the great entrepreneurs of the Southwark entertainment scene. He is said to be the first person to build banked seating uh, for people to watch bear baiting and bull baiting, uh, which is then the design used for the bank seating in the Southwark theatres. Uh, on, on which Shakespeare's plays, in which Shakespeare's plays would have been put on. And he's a great showman also because he's a great advertiser. Uh, so he sends his servants out to proclaim that there's going to be this bull baiting and bear baiting on the Friday, they're advertising it on Wednesday, so it's the big build up towards the big show. Uh, and to attract people's attention, 16th-century London is a busy, noisy place, so they're banging a drum and leading along a bull and a bear, which would catch your attention going through the streets of, of London. This is Charing Cross, is just outside London at this stage. But a horse pulling a cart, as you can see, is startled by the drum, perhaps a bit scared by having a bull and a bear bearing down on it and it rushes off and somebody gets run over. So even advertising can be dangerous. All this might cause you to seek solace in the church. You think, well, what can go wrong in the church? That's going to be nice and safe, right? Um, But we have lots and lots of church-based accidents. One of the big problems is bell ringing. Bell ringing really takes off in the 16th century as a a communal recreation uh, and a part of the life of parish churches takes over in a political sense too because parishes start to ring their bells on the 17th of November which is the anniversary of Queen Elizabeth's accession. The way to show how loyal you are is to celebrate being saved from all the troubles that Queen Elizabeth has saved you from by ringing your church bells and having a bonfire and a barrel of beer in the street on the 17th of November. So here they are in York doing just that except... What they haven't yet worked out is that if you don't tie the end of the bell rope to the ground, bell ropes can swing around quite alarmingly and so uh, Tudor bell towers seem to be full of loose bell ropes swinging around, grabbing people round the leg or between the legs, pulling them up in the air and dropping them head first on the ground, as happens here. and uh, so bell ringing is quite dangerous what about maypole dancing that's nice and safe we used to do that at primary school surely you can't have an accident maypole dancing well you can because maypoles are large pieces of wood uh, oh no sorry uh, have we got the maypole I cut out the maypole uh, maypoles collapse on <laughs> maypoles collapse on people I knew this was a half hour lecture and not the full hour uh, maypoles collapse on top of people because they're big pieces of, of, of wood sits quietly still and listen to a sermon is the answer but even that Even that turns out to be dangerous. So here is a butcher in Kent, sitting close to the pulpit. Um, And this is one of the beautiful things about these uh, these accounts, they give you so much detail. So we know what the book was that fell off the pulpit and hit him. probably one of these English editions of the sermons of of Bullinger. Um, The the vicar actually was a Cambridge graduate so he might have been using a Latin edition uh, but whatever it was it hit him on the head and the worst bit is he went to the doctors and the doctors said don't worry mate you'll be fine Uh, and and then he died on on the 20th of May. Um, So uh, even sitting quietly listening to a sermon could be dangerous. Now you might be wondering by this point, did these people have no conception of health and safety? They have so many accidents that surely uh, they, they, just, they, they can't have had any idea what they were doing. In practice, of course, like us, they had lots of good ideas on how to do things safely. They just couldn't always put them into effect. So to finish, let's look at a couple of those. Uh, agricultural handbooks give you helpful advice, in the case of Thomas Tusser's 500 points of good husbandry, they give it to you in not very good poetry, um, but uh, presumably to make it easier to memorise, so here is advice about what to do if you have birds of prey or crows which are taking the little uh, ducklings or chicks from your from your domestic fowl you've got to get rid of them says Thomas Tusser kill crow pie and Caddo Caddo a jackdaw rook buzzard and raven or else go desire them to seek a new haven in scaling the youngest to pluck off his back so if you're going to climb up and kill the little ones in the nest beware how ye clamber for breaking your neck which is easier said than done Particularly if you're destroying a kite's nest, we we, we know kites in Oxfordshire now are quite big and potentially angry birds and if you've just destroyed their nest they have some reason to be angry. So here's a labourer, climbs an oak tree, destroys the kite's nest, trying to come back down, stood on a weak branch and fell. So you can give people good advice but they can't necessarily take it. You can give people good advice but they might not pass it on to the right other people. So Tusser also says, take heed how thou layest the bane for the rats for poisoning servant thyself and thy brats. He would do anything <laughs> for a rhyme, Thomas Tusser. Um, so here they are, they've, because uh, obviously the problem with rat poison is you have to make the rats want to eat it. So you've got to put it in something that's quite attractive to eat. So in Warwickshire, 1552, they take nuts of uncooked white bread and milk sugar. So a nice, gooey, probably rather sticky, tasty concoction with rotten bane, rat's bane, arsenic trioxide. That's what they use for poisoning rats, put it in a skillet, a boiling pan, uh, uh, with the intention of killing ravens, they're gonna put it out for the ravens, but the servant comes in and thinks, oh, that looks tasty, I've been out working hard, I'll just pinch a couple of those. Uh, And so he eats the rat poison. More poignant in a way, we've got a lady who makes a potion for killing lice, so the equivalent of Tudor knit shampoo using arsenic trioxide and puts it in the pot next to the pot of beer and gets up in the dark to help her husband and then before she goes back to bed she thinks, I'll just have a drink of beer and she drinks the wrong one. So it's easy to give people good advice but they can't always take it. And that's why it's with some hesitancy, but I suspect in in, uh, response to popular demand, because as the British taxpayers, you've all paid for this research. This is sponsored by the Economic and Social Research Council, whose logo I put up at the start. So you'll be expecting to have some takeaway message. So the best takeaway message I can give you is this one. This is William Lamley. Uh, He'd had too much to drink, it must be said, before this happened. He went into his friend's kitchen and he tried to dance on one leg, which next to an open fire with a large pot of boiling water is, is not best practice. So should you ever find that you come home having had a little too much to drink, which I'm sure you wouldn't, and you find yourself in a kitchen with an open fire, please don't try to dance on one leg. That leaves us about 15 minutes for questions if there are things that people would like to ask. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.